You're listening to the 50th episode of the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast. As a special treat, we want to give a plug to our friends down at the Johnson Space Center for a new podcast that they just launched called Houston We Have a Podcast. Their first episode is a great showcase of the International Space Station, and their next upcoming episode showcases NASA's new astronaut class. Their link is in the show notes, but you can also catch them and the NASA and Silicon Valley podcast on NASAcasts, which is a single omnibus podcast feed that includes all of NASA's podcasts in one big RSS feed. Today's guest is Jack Boyd, Senior Advisor to the Center Director at NASA Ames. Jack has 70 years of experience at Ames, first joining back in 1947 when Ames was a part of the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA. This is fitting as NASA's Langley Research Center is celebrating their 100-year anniversary. In fact, if you're in the Virginia area, you should check out Langley's Centennial Symposium that runs until Friday. Jack talks about how Ames spun out of Langley during the NACA days and how they laid the groundwork for modern aviation. We talk about how NASA was created, pulling in the NACA centers, and how NASA continues to be with you when you fly. So, here is Jack Boyd. We always like to start off this with getting to know the guest a little bit, where they talk about you know how they joined NASA, how they got to Silicon Valley. Yes. See, well, I was going to say this is like a little bit of a unique situation for you because you joined NACA, and this wasn't even called Silicon Valley when you moved out here. No, it didn't become Silicon Valley for what probably ten years after I got here. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Talking about NACA, NACA, how did you end up working at Ames to begin with? I'll go way back to Virginia. I was born in Virginia, okay? okay. And um, I was interested in airplanes, but I was more interested in uh, not sports, but in doing things with my hands, okay. building stuff. Okay. Tinkering and building. And I lost track of that very quickly, though. But <laughs> I had a cousin who was a parachuter. Okay. And he came back from the war and said... Uh, I'm going to go to Virginia Tech. You ought to come up there and be an aero engineer. And I said, what's an aero engineer do? Mm -hmm. He said, well, I'll show you. And he took me up in a biplane. Uh, he did what was a double, <laughs> double seats in the back, and he and I were in the back, and the pilot was in front. Okay. And I thought it was the best thing that ever happened in the whole world, a biplane. <laughs> I said, what the hell makes this thing stay up? Yeah, really. And he said, well, he tried to explain pressure distributions over a wing and what have you. And mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. But he did persuade me to go to Virginia Tech. So in 1944, January, I went to Virginia Tech. Oh, wow. It was during the war, remember? Yeah, yeah. So you had to go through fast. So I finished in three years Okay. with a bachelor's degree in Aero ME. Okay. And um, he finished before I did, of course. Anyway, um, and a guy came around interviewing from Langley Field. Okay. Uh, other places, too. I'm sure that he went. And uh, I said, well, I, I'd like to interview, but I don't want to go to – I want to get out of Virginia. <laughs> he said, well, you know, we got a center way out on the West Coast called Ames Aeronautical Laboratory, situated at Moffett Field, a Navy base. And I said, well, 
if you can interview me for that, I'd like to go. He said, well, I can't do that. I'm just a Langley, Langley guy. But he interviewed me anyway. Okay. And about a month later, I got a note saying, yeah, I got your contact at Ames. <laughs> so you can uh, at least talk to them. So I did, and they made me an offer within a week. Really? Just over the phone? Yep, or? over the phone. And it, the guy, I never could remember his name, but he was the one who helped me get out here. So uh, this was like in December. Okay. I graduated in December '46. And they said, you got to be here by mid-January. So just so January 15th, 1947. You just loaded everything in a car and just... Oh, no, no car. No. I didn't have a car. <laughs> okay. My That's whole family talk. didn't have a car. We, I came by train. Really? And I met two nurses on the train, though. That was interesting. <laughs> All the way across the country, we had talked. They got off in L.A., and I came on up here. Oh, wow. And so when you first got to... Ames, like what, 1947, the war was about winding down at that point. What were you working on? Hmm. Straight out the gate. No, the war had it's, apparently convinced the country that we needed to do more work in aeronautical engineering. Okay. To back up a bit, yeah, yeah. remember uh, Lindbergh mm-hmm. was on the NACA, the advisory committee. Okay. Amongst many other people, Orville Wright and many other well-known folks, Jimmy Doolittle. And he said... Um, to the president, he was afraid of what was happening in Germany, mm-hmm. and he said, you ought to put together another center to do aeronautical research, and it ought to be as far away from the East Coast as possible. <laughs> so far, I far guess the, the president said, okay, go find a place. Mm-hmm. So Lindbergh apparently went around the country, and he picked this site for Ames. So Charles Lindbergh was sort of our grandfather, I guess. And I remember hearing about it at the time where it's it made a lot of sense because, you know, a very temperate, like very moderate climate, you know, typically 70 degrees, no humidity. Yeah. You know, and there was a couple of consistent. Uh, airplane builders out here on the West Coast, okay. mostly in the L.A. area. So that was another sort of a draw in mm-hmm. this direction. Yeah, so it's like I remember going to Kitty Hawk and checking it right. out, and they were talking about how, you know, the wind – the hills and the sand, so it was like the perfect area to do like test flights. And well, I think and Lindbergh like had three reasons for picking this site. Yeah. Said, yeah, I think there's three reasons where it went like it's cheap electric power, and you're going to build big wind tunnels. That was a uh-huh. the weather's good, so you can fly research airplanes and practically it's, year round, right? Practically year round, and it's in the middle of a really fantastic group of universities. Uh-huh. University of California, Stanford, Santa Clara, San Jose yeah. State. So he said that's three reasons to put it there. Wow. So when you you know you hop on a train, you move all the way out here. What were you working on? What was how that start off? Well, a guy named Walter Vincenti uh, was the branch chief, and incidentally, he's celebrating his hundredth anniversary, hundredth <laughs> birthday. Wow. Uh, he's a Stanford professor. He left here and went there. Mm-hmm. R.T. Jones, who developed the swellback wing, was my sort of mentor, too. Mm-hmm. He said, read everything you can, and then we'll give you a little project to do. And he said, and the project he said, I want you to do is get yourself a swept-back wing built in the model shop and test it okay. in this little wind tunnel that we've got. we got a wind tunnel that went 1.53 Mach number. Oh, 1. wow. 5. And so I started out... You did the whole thing. You sort of drew up what you wanted. You took it to the shops. You monitored it through the shops. Mm-hmm. You brought it back. You put it in the wind tunnel, <laughs> and you tested it at yeah. supersonic speeds to see what the drag, lift, pitching moments were like. 
And how how were you able to measure that? Like from from the wind we had, tunnels, uh, we had little balances we put up inside the fuselage of okay. the model. The models weren't about this big, remember? You know, about like 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 six. I got one nine of my inches. It was about this long, about this wide. Okay. And it had a little spherical uh, shape, can fit by a body. Mm-hmm. They had what we call balances. Mm-hmm. They were electronic, and you put them up inside the fuselage and tested the forces. Okay. That's, and, it, and read out the forces on a manometer board sometimes. Uh, uh-huh. And we put little holes sometimes in the wings to get the pressure distribution over the wing. Oh, wow. So that was a complicated. We had to have a little bit bigger model for that. Yeah. And at that time, um, I mean, you mentioned Langley, and I think of, like, you know, Langley, their research center, Ames Research Center, now is a part of NASA. But back then, it was Langley was a part of NACA. Um, you know, same thing with well, Ames. Well, Langley, of course, was the first center. We were the okay. second, and uh, Glenn was the third. Okay. And Dryden was the fourth. There were four NACA research centers. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. In 1958, when we converted over to NASA, there were those four centers. So how was it during that time, you know, having lived through it all of, you know, working in the wind tunnels, being here as a research center, studying wind tunnels, how airplanes work, and then moving it into the beginning of, like, the space race and informing NASA. How was it? Well, it was exciting, but we didn't know. We <laughs> didn't really know that we were doing such exciting things. Yeah. We came to work every day. We were sort of dull, plotting engineers. Yeah. And as you know from recent publications, we had these computers, mm-hmm. lady computers, not computer computers, who sat in a room <laughs> and reduced the data for us. Yeah. And we had, and on my wind tunnel, we had about six or eight wind ladies sitting doing the data reduction. Oh, wow. Uh, and when they said the uh, engineers were married to their computers, they were quite right. <laughs> quite Sometimes literally. they married their computers. <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny process. You, you, you got the model built. You put it okay. in the wind tunnel. You got the data out of it. Mm-hmm. The computers reduced it to lift, drag, pitching moment. Mm-hmm. Then you wrote a report. And the industry came and picked up the data almost as fast as you could run it. Oh, wow. Uh, they were really desperate for data from a wind tunnel to determine what shapes, what configurations they should build. That's right. I mean, it's kind of easy now for people to think of the aeronautics industry or even the airline industry. But, you know, back in the early days, aeronautics was heavily government funded through like the airmail. Um, and then even as it progressed. Sort of like the airmail, right. Yeah. Well, the government started funding the airmail, then the private companies took it over. Exactly. The government started funding research in wind tunnels. Many of the companies started building their own wind tunnels. Okay. But they really liked the NACA wind tunnels because we had all sizes and shapes. Mm-hmm. We had wind tunnels that were two feet across and tested at Mach numbers of one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Then we had the big, huge 40 by 80, yeah. which you could put a full-scale airplane in. Wow. But it just tested at landing, landing and takeoff speeds. Oh, wow. So NAC had a whole spectrum of wind tunnels. So for these companies, it's like, at a certain point, why make your own wind tunnels yeah, when they can just come right. over here and use the ones that the government already built? They made some specialized ones of their own. But when they really yeah. wanted to get a wide spectrum of data over a wide range of box numbers, they would come to Langley or Ames or um, Glenn. Yeah, and it's not too different. I mean, even now, like we still have these private companies that'll come and use the wind tunnels. Yeah, and we still get do data. For, we still do that for for other companies, and we put out annual re- what we called annual reports, okay. and ACA did. Yeah. And in those annual reports was about 
10 different 10 or 12 papers which summarized the most relevant data of that year. Mm-hmm. And so the companies had that too to work with. Wow, it harkens back to, you know, thinking of NASA and, you know, the beginnings of NASA, but like, you know, this the first A, you know, <laughs> aeronautics, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's an important part. People tend to think of NASA as space and rockets, but well, like airplanes. NASA still is National Aeronautics exactly. and Space Administration. And I was while when I started, everything was aeronautics, 100%. Yeah. I would say now probably less than 25% of our effort mm-hmm. goes into aeronautics. And the budget, I uh, think, typifies that. <laughs> An 18, what, plus billion dollar budget? Yeah. I think, what, about a billion and a half goes into aeronautics, something like that. It's almost like those priorities or even just the model like kind of changed over time where aeronautics originally being heavily government funded and then the private sector would use um, different really because the industry didn't exist but over time public private partnerships and yeah. then until a fully fledged aeronautics I think industry everybody compares it to the railroads and the air oh, mail. Okay. Air, railroads and airmails were first government funded yeah. and the private folks took it over. Okay. I think aeronautics was privately funded and the big companies took it over. Same thing is now happening in space. Yeah. When we have the multiple uh, companies working on launch, launching rockets mm-hmm. into space, both in orbit and soon to the moon, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, a sim- it's similar to many things that have happened in the last 200 years in our past. We go from government-funded to private-funded, and that's exactly what's happening in the space. Excellent. And so, so talk a little bit about when NACA started morphing into NASA. How, how was that as an employee sitting here working during that time? I mean, you're just going to your going to your job, grabbing your coffee. <laughs> Actually, we didn't no, we didn't notice it too much at Ames. I think yeah. the uh, Langley noticed it a bit more because. Uh, They're close they to DC started too. <laughs> doing space work before oh, okay. we did. Yeah, you know they had the task force, the task group they called it. Mm-hmm. A colleague of mine that went to Virginia Tech we, it was a it was a guy named Chris Kraft. Okay, Chris Kraft was well known in the space world after he started at Langley. Then he went with a space task group to yeah. set up Houston GSC, and then he actually became the director at GSC. Oh wow! He retired some years ago because he was a couple of years older than I am. He's an old dude. <laughs> well, uh, even just kind of thinking of that morphing of like NACA into NASA, but let alone this area. I mean, even still at that point, it was just mainly, you know, it's not these tech companies as what it is now. It was like orchards. Well, it, it wasn't so good valley. And when we started, <laughs> yeah. uh, Hewlett Packard started in a garage yeah. around the late 40s. Okay. And then became a, a biggie. <laughs> yes. And the other companies started to grow up around it. Yeah. I think what, you know, I think the rationale that Lindbergh used to put Ames here yeah. was not dissimilar to what the companies. They came out and found good weather. They found yeah. fantastic universities, yeah, and, and they just started building up their companies around it. Uh, it just seemed so like they had, they had the talent here. That mm-hmm. was what they were looking for, all in kind of one place too. You know, between L.A. and San Francisco, what there must be eight major universities. Yeah, for Cal, Stanford, et cetera. Yeah, well, it's like and it makes sense. Like the conclusion that the government made, you know, of let's put an aeronautics research facility here 
amongst these com- amongst these like universities, great weather, and then eventually the, those companies started following suit. Well, the whole West the same Coast thing. had what, Boeing, Lockheed, the whole yeah. the big company started here. I think uh, Texas had a few starting too. Chance Car, yeah, Chance Fought, okay, started in Texas. So NACA becomes NASA. You know, for the most part, I, I guess like your the day to day lives here didn't really change that much. It's just the funding came from different places, I guess. It was a very slow change for us. If we hadn't started thinking about space mm-hmm. in the early 50s, yeah. remember we didn't become NASA until 58. People okay. like Harvey Allen, who developed the blunt body concept, he mm-hmm. began thinking about things burn up when they come to the atmosphere, you know, because it, particularly if they're sharp. He yeah. Said, so we said, Think, and he did the calculation. He did, he thought about it intuitively, but then he got he developed the computations that could go along with it, yeah. and said, "Now, no, the if the body was blunt, it'll take the heat away from the leaning edge, and it won't burn up so fast." <laughs> you know, he's he had a good friend called Fred Whipple, mm-hmm. who had what he called a prairie network. Okay, and it, he had pictures of all all across the country. He'd take pictures of these fireballs that came shooting into the atmosphere. Okay, and they would recover them, and discover to their amazement that they were all kind of blunt shapes. Okay. The pointed ones had burned off uh-huh. to the blunt shape, and they survived. So he brought he and Harvey became good friends, and I think that was part of the intuition that Harvey used to develop the blunt body. Well, and that's a funny thing. I think for people who aren't super familiar with you know, aeronautical engineering. Um, you know, I think for the layperson, you tend to think, you know, to go fast or to survive an entry, you have a pointy object. Like it's like cutting uh, through the water, it's pointy. Cutting through and the that's air. That's true, up to a pass. point. Up into up that to point. a certain velocity, that's true. Because Archie Jones, in developing swept back wing and the sharp leaning edges, yeah. said you want low drag. To get low drag, yeah. you need a sharp one. When you're coming in fast, you want high drag. You want just exactly oh, okay. the opposite. You want a high drag vehicle, so it will slow down in the atmosphere, and not burn up. So you make it blunt and fat <laughs> right up front. You make it blunt. So then that way it takes on that impact and it's kind of dispersed. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it doesn't have to burn the sharp edge off. Otherwise, you wouldn't survive. I mean, it probably seems obvious now, but back in the time, that was like a <laughs> that huge was phenomenal. discovery. Yeah, that was an intuition that Har- But Harvey Allen, who worked here, who started at Langley, incidentally. Mm-hmm. But he was graduated from Stanford, and he always wanted to come back home. <laughs> and when this laboratory was formed, he was sheer like that. Oh, nice. It was formed in December of 39. It was established. Oh, and wow. by the early 40s, people were coming out. Harvey was number five, I think, five or six. <laughs> um, the first you know, the first 20 or 30 people at Ames came from Langley. Because it, it was already there, so it They were sense. there. They were aero engineers. They'd been educated all over the country. But a number of them had this was home, so they wouldn't yeah. get back here. And that Harvey developed the the concept or the theorems that said uh, that's the reason Ames gets into trouble. You know, we're innovative. He said, <laughs> "Proceed until apprehended." No, nice. that was his motto. <laughs> it kind of fits for the general personality of the area. <laughs> it still does. Yeah. yeah, and that's why we get in trouble still. <laughs> So, okay, so as a part of NASA, you know, obviously Ames has always been aeronautics focused about, you know, studying airplanes and studying, you know, how things fly. But when did you start seeing some of the more space science or some of the other things start trickling in? 
DeFrance was a brighter guy than people gave him credit for. He was the first director. He was director from 1940 to 1965 for 25 years. Until I think in the mid-50s when Harvey was doing the blunt body stuff, Smitty got the feeling that we needed to broaden ourselves. Okay. And if we were going to broaden it, what would we do it in? Well, the universities around here were doing all sorts of studies and and I think life sciences and space sciences began to be a an area that it looked like we should get into. Just to broad, he felt we should broaden our base because Arrow was going to be a smaller part of the. He was very very bright in that sense, ornery old guy. <laughs> but uh, he was the one who started, and he started getting a few people here and there. He would hire mm-hmm. a guy named Chuck Sonnet was a space science person. A guy okay. named Chuck Klein who's very well known in this. It was a life sciences guy, okay. And it, he hired the two of them, and they started looking at little, you know, two or three people groups and okay. what we might do. In fact, both of them were sort of responsible for some of the spacecraft mm-hmm. uh, experiments we had on spacecraft. One interesting story was Carl Sagan. We yeah. got the Carl. Carl was a professor up at. Berkeley, yeah, and some of us went there and took courses from him. Okay, and he really got us excited about planets. Yeah, and, uh, if that was his field, so people like that. In fact, Harvey Allen and S.J. de France and what have you brought these few people in in different fields to yeah. broaden our base. Is what saved us. I'm sure and that's a precursor to how like Arrow games. alone would, would have been closed by now. Oh yeah. Well, I think as a precursor to how it is now, where the Ames portfolio is is vast. Yeah, you know, it's, it seems that you know yep. you think of certain NASA centers that like focus on like aeronautics or rockets or space human training. Yeah. You know, the only thing we never got into was propulsion. We sort of okay. stayed clear of propulsion because we recognized Glenn was the main propulsion one, and they knew more about it than we did. So, it was Langley. We always competed because they were aeronautics. <laughs> we were aeronautics. Yeah, aerodynamics. So they were our natural competitors, but they were also our mother centers. So okay. Oh yeah. So yeah. they like, spun us off. Yes. And, and so during this whole time, Jack, like, were you still always doing engineering? Were you still like were you still Yeah. Were you still sitting in the wind tunnels for the first fifteen years? I think I did forty forty seven to. This early '60s. Okay. They, uh, I got to know Harvey Allen pretty well. Yeah. And he uh, was a, a division chief, mm-hmm. and he was going to become assistant director. We had four aeronautics and for one for space. Okay. He said you ought to come up and get a little training and for a year or two and see if you like the administration building. <laughs> I said I don't want to do that really. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but he persuaded me. Okay. And I got interested in management mm-hmm. in the 60s okay. and came to the ad building and was a, sort of a tech assistant okay. to the various org directors, both in space and aeronautics. Mm-hmm. And that's when DeFrance decided we needed some additional training and called me up and said, have you ever heard of the Stanford Sloan program? I said, no. <laughs> he said, well, I think you ought to go. It's a business degree. Oh, cool. And we need somebody uh, who's an engineer who understands the technical side, business practices, nice. and whatever. And I said, No, nah, I don't want to go. <laughs> he said, I didn't call you to ask if you wanted to. I called you to tell you you were going. Yes, you were voluntold. <clears throat> so I was the first one to go to the Stanford Sloan program from here. After that, we really? had about 15 people. Oh, wow. And that was in 65. Okay. And it turned out to be a very good experience because I met all sorts of people. I'm sure. to the Stanford profs. 
it turned out the people who were my classmates, there were only 14 of us. Okay. And six PhD students to mix up. Became mm-hmm. presidents of Boeing and of, one of Lockheed, <laughs> and so the contacts were remarkable. Well, I'm sure. That's almost like one of those big advantages. I, I mean, a lot of government agencies have some variations of go get a grad degree at a school or, yeah. or even the military does the war college thing. You know, But I think one of the best byproducts of that is you just meet people, you have contacts, whether it's interagency government or if it's within big companies, and you just have all these contacts, and it's like it just builds that well, network. Well, the contacts were, were, were the most important thing at Stanford, I think. Yeah. And so after that, when you come Accounting, back— Accounting, I didn't like very much. <laughs> nice. After I came back, let's see, after I came back at 66, I became the assistant director for aeronautics, and the guy asked me to come over to space and became the same thing. We had two pieces, aeronautics and space, by that time, by mm-hmm. the late 60s. Yeah. Uh, remember, that's before NASA was formed still. Mm-hmm. No, it was 58. It was just a little after NASA. Okay. We were formed in, what, 68? wasn't NASA. Yeah. Somebody online yeah. is screaming as they're searching Google and they're yelling the answer for us. <laughs> and from there on... Um, I was asked to go to Dryden to be the deputy director. And again, okay. I didn't particularly want to go down to the desert. Yeah, just outside but, of L.A., down with Armstrong. Yeah, down with Armstrong. But the administrator called my wife and said, we want Jack to go down to the desert. Uh, <laughs> do you mind? We had four kids by then. Yeah. And she said, sure, he can go. I can do it without him for a year. So that ended my objection to going to Dryden. It was fun. It was a good experience, though. And I came back here as the associate director for Ames. Mm-hmm. This is now going in the ladder. We had deputy, one deputy and one associate. So did you ever feel that like itch, though, of wanting to go back into the wind tunnels and wanting to go back to doing no. research stuff? Or were you After I went good? to Sloan program, I didn't want to, yeah. to want to go back to the – I don't think I could have. I sort of lost – it kind of you moves lose fast. several years. You kind of lose track of what the relevant stuff is. Yeah, like staying on top uh, of the latest research. So the process of going from a wind tunnel jockey uh, to management at Ames to management at headquarters to management at other centers to management at University of Texas system. Yeah, was sort of a natural progress. Okay, if as you look at it. Yeah, I've been here now seventy years. It was seventy years ago that I started. Okay. But as I've talked about, some of the time I spent away from Ames. Okay. You'd spent some time away, you know, at different universities and different things. Um, so at what point in time did you come back to Ames, and then was it just right back into administration? I came back that? to Ames in 92, and okay. I was going to retire. Yeah. And somebody, one of the, whoever the director was said, why don't you come out and just sort of be part-time? Okay. Well, that didn't work. So I became a IPA. They call them IPAs. Okay. With different companies around, will IPA a person and and locate him at wherever they think he's most valuable to them. Okay. So I did that with the University of uh, California at Santa Cruz mm-hmm. and with Penn State. First with Penn State, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was IPA with Penn State, University of Santa Cruz, and uh, now I'm, um, what am I? <laughs> yeah, re-employed annuitant, a NASA re-employed annuitant. Right. Nice, okay. Right. So, you know, obviously you've seen, like, not only just Ames kind of, like, morph and change over the years, but even just this general area of going from, you know, orchards and fields to now these, like, tech companies. But for somebody who doesn't know anything about Ames, you're out talking to people or you're visiting somebody in Texas or whatever, and 
people oh, asking talk you. about Ames is the most exciting thing, and they yeah. love to hear about it because they, most everybody, yeah, almost everybody around us is interested in space exploration. Yeah, they really are. And if they find out you work here, that really turns them on, and they want to know everything about it that you know about it. If you're talking to someone who doesn't know anything about Ames, like what are the main things that you tell them? Well, I ask them if they've ever heard of supersonic speeds. Okay. And most of them haven't. What is supersonic speeds? And I explain, yeah. you know, mock mock waves, mock cones, sound barriers, yeah, et cetera, and how valuable it would be to get from point A to point B. In one hour instead of five, <laughs> yeah, really. You know, flying from New York to London at in uh, Concord yeah. was like two and a half hours. Oh, wow! And that takes you what seven or eight? Yeah. Uh, so to get around the world, and mm-hmm. the world is opening up, as they yeah. all understand, it's really valuable to do this kind of basic research. Otherwise, we have to depend on some of the country, yeah, to do this, and that doesn't turn them on at all. <laughs> so they love the idea of space. They don't know why quite, you know. Yeah. You talk about Mars, they, they think of little brown men. <laughs> talk yes. about, well, like Carl Sagan designed that plaque that we have mm-hmm. that we put on the Pioneer spacecraft. Okay. And he's made a little spacecraft called Pioneer back in the 70s. It went beyond Pluto. Mm-hmm. And Carl was uh, working with us, and he designed a plaque. He said... E.T. is out there. I firmly believe there's extraterrestrial yeah. life somewhere in the universe, and someday we'll find it. And if this pioneer is going to go beyond the solar system and it went beyond Pluto, mm-hmm. um, want to put something that would tell people what we're all about. Yeah. So he designed this very interesting plaque, which has two human forms on it, for one thing. Mm-hmm. a male and a female, mm-hmm. and on the, it shows this solar system with the sun and nine planets. And yeah. This spacecraft comes from planet number three. <laughs> okay. And um, so you'll know, one, where we come from, and you'll know what we look like. And some smart person said, well, they'll think they look just like us, except we don't wear clothes. Have <laughs> you seen this plaque? Yeah. It's two nude humans. Yeah. <laughs> So considering your experience of the time have you seen NACA at NASA and all the different range of like changes, what's kind of like the main advice that you give people who are coming in, you know, the next generation, new people getting hired in? You do two things. I'll yeah. do three things. One, listen to the older folks who are here because they really know what they're doing. Yeah. They've developed remarkable ability to, uh, what, build a new airplane or build a new spacecraft. Mm-hmm. Be sure you... Uh, Get along well with people because you have to depend on the people. There's no question about it. You've got to depend on people. So if you're a manager in particular, yeah. you better be able to get along with them and get along well. And two, don't be afraid to go out and learn something new, as I yeah. tend to do. If you want to, I want to be an engineer, that doesn't mean you can't learn about other things. So mm-hmm. do those three things, and you'll probably get along pretty well. Excellent. And then thinking about NASA as an agency, you know, you know, as somebody who clearly cares about what NASA does, is there something that like really excites you about something that NASA is going to be doing, or is there just general advice? If you were to give advice to the new administrator or to anybody, or to just the entity yeah, as a whole. <clears throat> One, you got to get along well with Congress because you need their support <clears throat> and with the administration. But the more important thing, I think, is to encourage young people mm-hmm. to go and take things that, in school 
to learn about things, one, that they're interested in, and two, that they can make a contribution for. And yeah. I think space exploration is not unlike the early days of when we opened up this country yeah. or when Columbus discovered America. Mm-hmm. Explore, explore, explore. Wow. And go out and do different things and don't be afraid to do them. Because, you know, if we had been like some people think we ought to back away from all this activity, yeah. we'd probably be still sitting in Spain <laughs> yeah. with uh, Queen Isabella's relatives yes. ruling us. <laughs> so don't be afraid to do new things. Or even be still sitting in caves somewhere in Africa. And, and you've also got to learn to live with a political system, you know. You may not yeah. like the Congress. You may not like what they do, but you've got to learn to be able to explain yeah. why what you're doing is important. And important to the whole, not just the country, but the whole human race. Yeah, I'd say sometimes it's easy to sit back and complain about things that frustrate you. It's quite another thing to try to understand motivations and understand yeah, but, things to try and, to make it work. Yeah, and the other thing you've got to do is understand what you're doing well enough to be able to explain it to a novice. Totally. <clears throat> you don't want to just explain it to a, an 18-year-old who's really excited, but you got to explain it to a 50-year-old who's going to support you with his tax money. Yes. You've got to be able to explain that, so. And don't be impatient with them. Yeah. Because you don't... You know, it took you a long time to get where you are totally. and understand what you're doing. So it's going to take them a while to understand it. They'd rather put their money into building a new road mm-hmm. or building a new transport system on site. And those things are important, but you yeah. can't turn off the exploration goals that people want to have, I think. Absolutely. So, and then for folks who are listening who have questions for Jack, talking about inspiring the next generation or anybody who's got any questions about your experience here, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So if people have questions, we'll take those in and we'll bring them over to Jack and we'll see if we can get any kind of... Big happy to talk to them. Uh, Or try. (laughs) Exactly. We'll we'll point you in the right direction. We'll, We'll get you all set up. So... Uh, But thanks for coming on over. This has been fun. Okay. That's it? Yeah, that's it. Okay.